welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. I'm Elizabeth Stevens, and it's my privilege to be here with Dr. Emil Basha, the Director of Congenital and Pediatric Cardiac Surgery at New York Presbyterian, to discuss Tetralogy of Fallot. Dr. Basha is extremely well published across the spectrum of congenital heart disease, and Tetralogy of Fallot is a particular area of his expertise. Dr. Basha, thank you for your time. First, let's start with the index case scenario. A three-month-old full-term male is referred to you after recurrent episodes of turning dusky, often when crying. During these spells, the baby pulls his knees to his chest. The patient is diagnosed with tetralogy of Fallot with TET spells. In terms of preoperative workup, what do you want to know in this baby's evaluation? The, The main test that you need, obviously, is an echocardiogram. And on the echocardiogram, you assuming that the baby has the typical features of tetralogy fallow, that would be an anterior malalignment VSD, uh, typically a PFO, and then a combination of right ventricular alpha tract obstruction, either at the infundibular level or the pulmonary valve or at the supravalvular level, or a combination of these three levels, or a branch PA stenosis. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, for a three-month-old, if he's gone home, the branch PAs will likely be okay, because kids who have small, you know, small hypoplastic branch PAs typically don't make it home. They become symptomatic before discharge. Um, <clears throat> so at that point, uh, in a symptomatic three-month-old, uh, full-term four-kilo baby, uh, I would go ahead and schedule him for surgery without delay. There's no reason to delay anything. He's big enough to have a complete repair. So I would not proceed with a uh, aortic pulmonary shunt. <clears throat> and I would want to know on the preoperative echo, again, assuming the normal uh, tetralogy features, I would want to know the level of stenosis. Is it mostly subvalvar, that is infundibular? Is there a hypoplastic infundibulum or not? I would want to know the Z-score of the pulmonary valve, the morphology of the valve, is it bicuspid or tricuspid? And then the main PA size as well. Great. And can you talk about a little bit about how um, the baseline saturation, the patient's growth, and things like how frequently spells might weigh your decision to go to the OR sooner uh, in, in different babies? Right. So basically for tetralogy fellow, you, if you have one episode of spelling, that is your ticket to the OR, basically. There's no reason to wait on a patient who, on a spelling tet. Uh, typically, you don't die from spelling, but you, you can if, you, if they're not attended. Um, so for, a sim- for any symptoms in tetralogy fellow, and typically those symptoms are spells or desaturations, even if the, the desats occur without the baby really being symptomatic in terms of dusky, or, or, but you can just measure by measuring the saturation. If the sats are low, that is below you know, 90%, at that point, there's really no reason to delay anything, and you should proceed for uh, surgery. Thank you. And then what associated conditions um, should be, we be aware of and be looking out for? So associated conditions with tetralogy fellow, obviously you want to know, you know, obviously you need to know your patient, so you need to know any non-cardiac malformations. Uh, that's obviously important to know. 
tetralogy fellow can be for the tetralogy fellow pulmonary atresia subtypes. You can have an association with the George syndrome. Uh, you can, you would want to, there's a, about 20, 25% association with white aortic arch. Uh, you may or may not have a patent ductus arteriosus associated with it. You may or may not have bilateral SVCs, which are important in terms of cannulation strategy. Um, um, yeah, those, those are the main things you would look for. Great. And then what in um, a clinical scenario would prompt you to have a, the patient cath pre-op? Uh, good, uh, good question. Uh, for If we go back to the same patient that you started beginning, 4 kilo, full-term uh, baby with spelling, tetralogy, flow, uh, there's really no reason to go to the cath lab. Um, one issue is coronary anatomy. Mm-hmm. Typically, uh, again, for symptomatic tetralogy, you have to go to the OR anyways. And so I, of course, uh, I'm interested in the coronary an, uh, anatomy, and I forgot to mention when I was mentioning the echo, criteria, echo findings, you need to obviously think about uh, coronary anatomy uh, because about, what, I think 10 to 15% will have a, a coronary anomaly of some kind, and specifically you're looking for the LED of the right coronary that's crossing the RVOT. Uh, but uh, the way we manage that uh, here is that we go to the operating room and we look at the coronaries, and if there is a coronary, a major coronary crossing the RVOT, we make a you know we make a judgment call as to um, going towards a BT shunt at that point and allowing the child to grow further. At some point, you're still going to have to tackle that coronary, uh, that right ventricular outflow tract, or uh, still proceeding with a complete repair. And that, in part, depends on at what level does the coronary cross the RVOT? Does it cross at at the, exactly at the annular level or below, does, is there enough space for you to make an incision to put an RVOT, uh, to make a, uh, to put an RV to be a conduit? Do you need to have a bigger child to have more space to put an RV to be a conduit, more space in the chest? So all these credit, all these things, uh, you know, you have to think about. In terms of the catheterization, uh, again, for the primary repair, I would not catheterize in order to elucidate coronary anatomy, even if the echo says there's an anomalous, an anomalous coronary, I would not go to the cath lab for the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, but there are situations where the echo has a suspicion of MAPCAS, major aortic pulmonary collaterals. And um, that is a situation where you might want to go to the cath lab because if there's a large MAPCA, and that can occur even, you know, typically that occurs with small branch PAs, but it occasionally, you may have a large map cut with normal size or slightly hypoplastic branch PAs. That is a situation that you might want to know about because of avoiding of um, uh, steel during bypass. You may cool more during bypass and you may ask the catheterizers to coil the MAPCA uh, preoptively if your branch PAs are okay. Of course, in a setting of spelling, you wouldn't want them to coil a MAPCA because it's still supplying some kind of a blood flow to the lungs. Um, and you could always ligate it, find it and ligate it during surgery. That's another possibility. Great. Uh, and can you, you touched on this briefly, but can you elucidate more on when you would consider a BT shunt? Right. So that's, a, that's an area of controversy. So I'm not claiming to, to know the absolute truth and, and, and uh, the more traditional approach is to, uh, so let's call it the traditional approach, would be to wait for a to be close to a year old, 
And in the meantime, if the child becomes symptomatic, you would do a BT shot at whatever time the child becomes symptomatic. That would be the what I would call a traditional approach. The, I would say the current approach right now for a lot of centers, including ours, is to proceed with a complete repair whenever the child is symptomatic. And that includes even a newborn that's symptomatic. Now, there are exceptions to that, and that uh, occurs, for example, when a child, for example, is as a contraindication for bypass, or has a feel that the outcomes are in fact uh, better when you perform a repair early uh, in terms of uh, growth. Uh, we know that BT shots as a procedure is not, is a fairly, has a fairly high incidence of uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, so that if we can, and then there's an issue of uh, PA distortion with BT shunts. So if we can, we avoid the shunts and we go for complete repair in almost every case. Let's proceed to the OR. Um, while we're in the OR, can you uh, talk briefly about some of the key steps and including how you how you decide between using a valve sparing and a, a approach versus a transannular yeah. patch? So, if you're taking a spelling child to the OR, it 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 is possible that you may have to do an emergent sternotomy and basically crash onto bypass, and that has happened to me and uh, has happened to most surgeons where the SADs are just not coming up. And so there, the speed is important and you, the anesthesiologist has to intubate the patient quickly. I wouldn't do any lines that are, you know, in, in too much, uh, too great a detail. I would just have one or two IVs and then, uh, and then quickly proceed with stenotomy uh, and then put the patient on bypass with an aortic cannula and a right atrial cannula just to stabilize the patient, you can always switch your venous cannulas later on to SVC and IVC. So that is a situation that does occur sometimes. Um, then, uh, you know, in terms of uh, valve sparing or not, my argument has always been that you want to analyze the pore valve just like the adult cardiac surgeons analyze the mitral valve, and you have to really have a, a good image in your mind as to how is this valve? Is it a bicuspid valve, tricuspid valve? Is it thick? Is it thin? Are the commissures developed or not? Is it sort of like what we call a volcano valve, which is doming and has a central orifice? Um, and so, and, and, and how big is the annulus? Because the, the cardiologists always focus on the annular size, but that's only one component of the valve. The effective orifice may be much smaller. You may have a decent sized orifice, which gives you a decent sized Z-score, but the effective orifice is actually quite small, two, three millimeters. So, uh, so what we, we have a sort of a, a, a gra graduated approach here. So for the mild pulmonary stenosis patients, typically we just do a commissurotomy with a 15 blade. Uh, the commissurotomy has to be deep and goes into the media. And that's all we do. And we typically almost always patch the main PA and patch the RVOT. But if you do, if you've done a Trans uh, pulmonary repair, trans atrial transpulmonary repair, then you can cut out the RVOT muscle and put a small patch on the RVOT. We try to minimize the RVOT incision as much as possible. For the moderate stenosis, uh, we always start with the commissurotomy, but then we move to a balloon dilation, interruptive balloon dilation done under direct vision, by which I mean I hand inflate the balloon 
and I can see the balloon going up and I can see the sort of the fibers stretch and I want you want to stop right before the valve basically tears um, so that's sort of for the middle range pulmonary stenosis and for the more severe pulmonary stenosis where normally you would do a transurinary patch well uh, that's a situation where you then you do divide the annulus and like you would for a transurinary patch but then you do a modified monocusp whereby you suture a patch uh, to the edges of the anterior cusp and then back backwards into the RVOT incision at the uh, endocardial level and roof the whole thing with a transcendental patch. That has worked uh, very well for us, in the, uh, except that uh, in the long term, we've seen a fair amount of uh, recurrent pulmonary regurgitation. But since these are all patients who would have had a transcendental yes. patch anyways, uh, none of these patients have required reoperation. So we feel pretty good that this, this in the 60% of patients who have remained fairly competent, at least those were helped with this technique. And would you say that the pre-op status of the baby influences your choice of a transamular patch versus a, a valve sparing? Uh, I.e. No, like yeah. a urgent emergent versus yeah. a kind of an elective? Not really. It's okay. really more of a morphologic uh, anatomic decision okay. as to what, what the, how the pulmonary annulus and pulmonary valve is like. And do you measure RV pressure routinely, and what do you find as acceptable? Yeah, uh, so it used to be that any pulmonary stenosis is shunned, should be shunned, and PR is completely accepted. This is, I'm talking 20 years ago now. Uh, the, the opinion, and that includes my opinion as well, is that a mild PS is okay. And uh, especially if you have no regurgitation associated with it, that's sort of seen as the ideal state. I, I agree, although I would say we don't know what, what we're gonna find in 20 years. Um, so the question then becomes what's my PS? So we do measure RV pressure routinely, and uh, I like to keep the RV pressure less than half systemic. Uh, I know that other surgeons accept higher RV pressures, but I, I do like to leave RV pressure half systemic. So let's address an intraoperative scenario uh, that is of finding an anomalous coronary, the LAD off the RCA crossing the RVOT. Uh, what do you do? Yeah, so in that situation, uh, like I was saying earlier, you have to make a judgment call. Uh, probably the, the correct board, question, board type answer is to go to a BT shunt and palliate the baby with a BT shunt and then give the child another six to nine months to grow and then come back and uh, and at that point <clears throat> you do your repair which you can do either by coring out the muscle underneath the coronary depending on where it is exactly or you put an RV2PA conduit over the coronary. Uh, what I do also that's important is that I mark the coronary at the first operation with either a bunch of 6-O-prolines above and below where it's crossing so that I can find it again mm -hmm. um, when I come back because when you come back it's a redo it may be you know encased in scar and you don't you don't really know where it is. Great what about you're coming off bypass and you note to have residual VSD what do you do and uh, what determines your uh, decision making in terms of like size of the VSD yeah. how the patient's doing? Right. One very important physiologic item to understand is that is that tetralogy fellow is a is a situation where you have a pressure loaded heart um, 
residual VST or any kind of VST is a volume load on the heart. So putting these two together, you understand that a residual VST which imposes a volume load on the heart, especially if you've relieved the pulmonary stenosis and the right ventricular tract obstruction, is very poorly tolerated in a tetralogy fellow, post-op tetralogy fellow. So a residual VST in an AV canal, for example, which is a volume-loaded lesion, will be much, much better tolerated than a residual VSD in tetralogy fellow. Therefore, your, uh, your threshold to intervene on a residual VSD should be, should be much lower in tetralogy fellow. So, uh, if I have a residual VSD seen on TEE, for example, so of course I look at the location, I look at the size, and then I look at my, uh, the rest of my repair. Um, you can try to gauge the uh, QPQS by measuring PASAT and, and uh, SVCSAT and then seeing, you know, trying to estimate your uh, QPQS ratio. Um, but as I said, I mean, in a situation where the patient is doing excellent hemodynamically, and where you have a smaller residual VST, I might accept it, although I would take, I would very much keep an eye on this patient and see what happens. In a situation where the, the residual VST is moderate, let's say two, two, three millimeters and more, I might very well go back on bypass and try to fix it. And what should we be looking for perioperatively in particular for these patients as they recover? Yeah, so typically, one more thing I want to mention that has to do with post-op also is that I do t routinely leave a, a small PFO behind, that is for RV um, decompression um, as uh, one of my mentors always said, blue output is better than no output, meaning you have right to left chunting because the RV is dysfunctional, therefore you have right to left chunting at the PFO level, your SATs go down but at least you have good cardiac output. That's a much, that is a much better situation than having intact interceptive. So we routinely leave a, a small PFO behind. Sometimes the kids, the babies are desaturated for a day or two, and then the sets go back up, but at least they do, they kind of, they have a smooth uh, post-op course. Uh, but basically the, the post-op PET is a story of a stunned RV, because you've cut some RV muscles, you've made an incision or not, you've had PR or not, you have PS or not, uh, and it's a st and you start off with a hypertrophic, hypertrophic uh, stiff ventricle, so that's ven that's a ventricle that's going to have a fair amount of diastolic dysfunction by definition post op, and so um, that that's really kind of this, the, determines your post op care. So mirinone is a good drug, but uh, you know I'm cautious in using it in a very early period because I don't want to make the patient hypotensive. So you have to be careful with dosage. Um, rhythm is always an issue with the trilogy fellow. They, they are dependent on the atrial kick. They have, uh, uh, they can have junction ectopic tachycardia or other kinds of tachycardias, which can be. Uh, although we haven't seen jet in a long, long time, so I'm not sure what it is that made it disappear. But it's a good thing. Um, so those are the. You know, you do want to extubate early if you can. Although I don't feel that the trilogy fellow is one of those. Uh, diagnoses where early extubation is absolute must, such as Fontan, for example.
So let's move on to a second scenario. This is a 35-year-old male with a history of tetralogy of flow repair at one year of age with a transandular patch. He has been followed for increasing RV dimensions and now reports worsening exercise tolerance. What are your indications for pulmonic valve replacement in such adults? So uh, for a patient such as this one, uh, it sounds like there's definitely going to be an indication to operate. What you won't want to know is the actual RV dimensions, RV and diastolic dimensions, and the number uh, uh, indexed, and the number that um, most people use right now is about is around 150 cc's uh, per meter square. Uh, so do you have that for that patient? Yeah, so this patient is actually uh, 170. Okay, so, so from that standpoint, he already sort of qualifies as needing a pulmonary valve. But I would argue that, I mean, that's only one piece of the puzzle, the, the RV dimensions, or the, an important piece of the puzzle. But if in a patient who's symptomatic uh, and has free PR and has had to draw for low repair, first of all, you want to make sure that there's no residu other residual lesions. So you, want, you do want a good workup with either catheterization or MRI, make sure the branch PAs are okay, there's no distortion. Uh, you know, RV pressure, you want to consult the op note if you can, uh, make sure all tricuspid valve is okay. But in the absence of all these findings, then then I would definitely go ahead and put in a pulmonary valve. In fact, I think that I, my opinion is that pulmonary valve implantation has become a very, very safe procedure and that, and that most people, almost irregardless of their RV dimensions, once they get into their 20s, and if they've had free PR for 20 years, uh, most people require a pulmonary valve implantation. And what about if this patient has, let's say, moderate TR, but the leaflets themselves look normal in terms of their pathology? The what, tricuspid valve leaflets. Yes. Yeah. What would you do or yeah. not do for the tricuspid? So we know that providing a competent pulmonary valve in a setting of free PR and T tricuspid regurgitation will improve the tricuspid regurgitation. So, and this is some data that even comes from here. So uh, if you have moderate TR or less, you, it's a judgment call as to whether you want to touch the valve, the tricuspid valve or not. As you mentioned, if the leaflets are good and mobile, you may want to leave it alone. Um, if, the, if there's a leaflet that's restrictive, maybe the VST patch is impinging on it, that's a tricuspid valve you might want to do something to. And, and typically, I like to do the Vega in these situations. I don't, I don't put rings in, and it works pretty well because, again, you've provided a competent pulmonary valve downstream. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Sure. You're welcome.